Russian President Vladimir Putin critic and chief political rival Alexei Navalny was sentenced to another 19 years in prison for extremism. Joining us to discuss this and the latest on the war in Ukraine is Andrew Sulis, fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Thank you for joining us this morning, Andrew. You're very welcome, and good morning, Andy. Uh, well, let's get to the the, uh, the latest, and the latest on Alexei Navalny's imprisonment. How's it being received in Russia and globally? What's the response been? Uh, not much. Uh, Navalny is, in terms of Russian politics and within Russia, a political outlier. Uh, he is sort of represents uh, the intelligentsia, a certain section of the intelligentsia, sort of a liberal tradition in Russia, sort of pseudo-liberal, because he's not a complete liberal. Uh, the point is, uh, the ripple effect is minimal in Russia. He, he is a political outlier. It's, it, uh, it's, not, it's, it's much more in the West, and even in the West, there's not much resonance on this story. All right, let's uh, talk about the latest happenings as far as, you know, perhaps putting a cap on this uh, conflict over the weekend. Saudi Arabia held a summit including representatives from 40 countries aiming to draft key principles on how to end the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. What do we know about the summit that happened over the weekend? Yeah, so this is interesting. So, okay, so you have basically all the players except Russia at this meeting. And and people say, well, Russia's isolated. Not really. What you're seeing is a process, a very long process of hammering out positions that one day, because one day this war will end when people on the sides are exhausted enough, uh, and they're laying out the positions. So what we've had here is this is the Ukrainian opportunity to present its, what, what they have a 10-point plan. And so they presented that. And basically, you have the Western core supporters supporting that plan. But you have people like China, India, and China has its own 12-point plan uh, uh, um, listening and agreeing to one principle of the, of, the, of the Ukrainian plan, which is territorial sovereignty. Now, the Chinese plan, the 12-point plan, also has territorial sovereignty in it, but it has one thing the Ukrainian plan doesn't have, and that's key for Russia, actually, which is no advancement of military blocks. This is the code for saying no NATO enlargement, which means no NATO enlargement in Ukraine. This is the contentious point that actually is the reason why the war started in the first place. So this is the beginning of a long process. There's a lot more conferencing to take place, but, you know, it's very important to talk because at the end of the day, it's only through talk that we're going to end the war. And the talks happening, as mentioned, at this summit in Saudi Arabia over the weekend. Why Saudi Arabia? What is what is their interest in getting involved? Yeah, well, Saudi Arabia is on a sort of um, uh, goodwill uh, path in their foreign policy. They've been, of course, in the doghouse for a long time because of the murder of the, the journalist and so on. And so uh, they've been taking steps over the last couple of years to redeem themselves in the in the international uh, in international public opinion and and among other states. And so they've been actually doing a very good job. And and people are now trekking to Saudi Arabia to negotiate deals, and they're coming back into the fold. This is sort of the, the reformation of Saudi Arabia in the world's eyes. Uh, other news: uh, Kiev mentions that they were successful in an attack on a Russian. A Black Sea naval base. What can you tell us about this attack? Yeah, so um, they, they, the Ukrainians have been using, because they, they are not able right now to punch through the Russian defense line and the front line, they've been relying far more, much more, on drone attacks uh, uh, inside Russia proper. And so the, they've, they've hit in the Black Sea area, they've, they've hit certain uh, oil depots, in, in, as you mentioned there, in, in, in near the base. They've also hit 
a freighter, a civilian freighter that, that the Ukrainians say was taking jet fuel to the uh, to the Russian port, and they hit the, uh, the the rear engine component and destabilized the thing. Now it's being towed by the Russians into port. But the point is that that the Ukrainians are relying on drone strikes into Russia proper to take the war to the Russians because and and to kind of cause some form of attrition because they're not able to break through on the line. So it's an alternative way of hitting the Russians. So have we learned, you know, we talked a couple months ago about the Ukraine counteroffensive. Have we learned that this is much more difficult than the Ukrainian forces had originally thought would be? Absolutely. I think people underestimated uh, the strength of the Russian, what I call the, the deliberate defense. And and so the, the, the people just assumed there was too much of an assumption that they could break through the Russian lines, that they were brittle. Uh, because they had that experience in late 2022, where the Ukrainians actually did uh, two very successful offensives against Russian positions in Kharkiv and Kherson. But the Russians there were, were, they were off balance. They were not in a deliberate defense. They were what's called hasty defense. So people thought there would be a replay. Whether it it isn't, uh, and and other observers, I mean myself, I've stated over over and over again that this would be a very different fight, and it is a very different fight. Now, the other complicating factor for the Ukrainians is that they've had like maybe – Eight weeks to train up on these Western armaments that they're that they're actually forming up these units with. That's not a lot of training time. And so some of these units did extremely badly actually in June when they when they tried to hit the Russian positions. Now the Ukrainians are reassessing it and they realize they have to go very slow on this because they also don't have that many more people left. So they've got to really be careful about casualty rates. Let's uh, talk about uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky. And uh, now we're hearing details of a foiled alleged uh, assassination plot against the Ukraine president uh, back in July. Can you tell us what we know about this? And I'm sure this is one we're hearing about, but there must have been more than a couple over the past year, 18 months. Yeah, we we, we can we, we certainly uh, can assume that there were more. We don't have facts on that, so I can't speculate. But on this particular event, this was now the story was released the other day by the Ukrainian uh, government. Uh, the event itself occurred in June uh, when the uh, the dam had broke uh, in the Dnieper River and there was the flooding areas. And uh, Zelensky was going on a tour of the flooded areas. And there was a woman who was working. She's a sort of lower level employee uh, of the government that was working in the area. And she uh, was apparently gathering information on where Zelensky would go. She had sort of an idea of his, of his itinerary. And she was signaling that information back to the Russians, the contacts she had. Uh, the idea was that if the Russians decided to take out Zelensky, they could. And so the Ukrainian in counterintelligence people got wind of it. And they actually caught her in the act, as they say. And so she was arrested and the plot was foiled. So nothing happened. But yes, this person was caught in the act of preparing information that could have led to a Russian assassination. That doesn't mean the Russians were actually going to act on the data, but there was a potential for it. All right. We've talked about where we are today. We've looked back over the past few months, if you will, Andrew. Now to look ahead, because, you know, we are in August. We're not quite at the winter months, but it seems like not that long ago we were talking about the cold winter months and the grips of the weather, how uh, much of an impact they'd have uh, moving ahead for the conflict. Now we're getting closer. Do you think we're going to push through another winter or do you think we'll have it resolved by that point, Andrew? 
Uh, both options are possible. That's a cop-out, but it's true. Uh, so, so let me explain that. So option A, let's say, uh, which is uh, uh, the, the question first becomes, will the Ukrainians succeed in breaking through the Russian lines before uh, the end of the summer uh, campaigning season? Most uh, analysts say no. Uh, the, the, the Ukrainian positions, or the Ukrainian, the Russian defenses are too strong and the Ukrainians can't break through, which means you get to the fall season when the weather starts turning bad and you start up getting winter and operations slow down. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but it slows down. So do the parties, Russians and Ukrainians, at that point begin to consider peace talks right, or ceasefire at least? Right now, the, uh, the, the estimates are no, although it's possible, because neither side still has the appetite to do what to take to, uh, to compromise on the ceasefire. If that's the case, and if exhaustion levels are not sufficient, that's really the question. Will exhaustion levels be sufficient to force them to, to negotiate? If not, then we're into a war in 2024. And then the same equation kicks in. In 2024, as they start presumably fighting a winter war, uh, Will exhaustion come in? When, the question is, when does exhaustion force Russia and Ukraine to the negotiating table? That's really the equation. All right. Lots of ground we covered this morning. Thanks so much, Andrew. We appreciate your time. You're very welcome, Andy. My pleasure. Andrew Rosillis, fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Are you one of the million Canadians suffering with psoriasis? Joining us to discuss the issue of Psoriasis on this Psoriasis Awareness Month is Dr. Vamal Prajapati uh, from the Skin Health and Wellness Center and Dermafi. Well, th- thank you for taking the time. Uh, you know that it's a big deal when we've got a full awareness month surrounding psoriasis. You know, people, if, you, if you're living with it and dealing with it, you know what a big deal it is. But maybe a lot of folks don't. What is psoriasis and how does it impact someone's life? So psoriasis actually affects up to 3% of the general population. That equates to roughly 1 million Canadians. And typical onset is actually during the third and second decades of life, although up to one-third of cases actually occur before 20 years of age. So often we are seeing this actually start in childhood and adolescence. And genetic and environmental factors play a role in its development. Now psoriasis typically presents as areas affected by redness, thickness, and scaling. And any body site can be involved, uh, especially the scalp, elbows, and torso. And patients can experience itching, burning, stinging, and pain. In addition, the condition can have a significant negative impact on quality of life and mental health. Up to 30 and 60% of patients, respectively, can develop anxiety and depression. Wow. You mentioned, you mentioned kind of the time frame and the structure surrounding psoriasis, the second and third decade of life, perhaps. Um, you know, you mentioned the genetic aspects environmental uh, but does it have a shelf life if i have psoriasis will i have it for my entire life or could it kind of come and go that is a terrific question now if you're a patient who's less than 18 years of age sometimes there's a chance that the condition can kind of go into remission and then may or may not show up later on in life but generally speaking psoriasis is a chronic disease so in adulthood uh, this condition once it starts it's going to stay and will not go away without treatment. Although there may be some area times when it waxes and wanes, generally speaking, it's here to stay. What are some of the misconceptions around psoriasis? The number one misconception about psoriasis is that it is contagious. Um, so psoriasis is actually due to uh, immune system being overactivated and the number of times the skin cells are dividing in the 
is actually 10 times that of normal. So infection does not play a role in psoriasis. It is not contagious. I would say that's the number one myth. We're speaking with Dr. Vamal Prajapati, Skin Health and Wellness Center and Derm Phi. Uh, Dr. Psoriasis and different effects on different people, does it affect people of color differently? Yeah, so interesting. Um, psoriasis affects uh, patients of all skin, different skin colors. But what's interesting in, in people with darker skin, or we call it skin of color, it can sometimes be more difficult to diagnose, and that's because the color red often does not show up as red. In people with skin of color, the red could appear as a dark purple, gray, even sometimes gray to black. And so the problem here is it leads to misdiagnosis. And, and in some cases, actually skin biopsy should be performed to confirm that this is uh, psoriasis. And then misdiagnosis always leads to undertreatment. And the problem with psoriasis is the longer you let the condition uh, be without treatment, sometimes the more difficult it is to actually clear it. Oh, interesting. I want, I want to go back to beyond the physical manifestations, you know, kind of that mental impact. If you can dig a little bit more into that for us, because I found that very fascinating. Yeah, many of our patients uh, with psoriasis really struggle uh, even with day-to-day activities. And uh, obviously, uh, interacting socially with people when you have psoriasis can be extremely difficult. The condition can lead to low self-esteem, social isolation, and what happens is uh, people will become very withdrawn and not wanting to uh, socialize with other individuals. And so over the years, we found that when you can get rid of the psoriasis, as in treat the psoriasis and control it, people can get their lives back and they end up leading very normal lives. What is very uh, you know, taken for granted for people without psoriasis is you know, wearing uh, clothes that are black in color, going to the swimming pool, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And those types of activities are impacted when you have quite you know, moderate to severe psoriasis. And so uh, those patients are affected in those ways that the people who do not have psoriasis uh, wouldn't even think of twice. And so often our treatment goals are actually aimed at uh, getting some of those aspects of their life back under control and, and normal. What are some of the first steps, you know, if I'm having some skin issues, can, can I, you know, do I have to go to a specialist uh, right away or can I check in with my family doctor? How does this work? Yeah, so the best is to actually see family medicine and family medicine will then refer to dermatologists and dermatologists like myself who specialize in psoriasis, we actually run a rapid access psoriasis clinic at the Skin Health and Wellness Center as part of the psoriasis diagnostic and treatment center. And so generally speaking, patients who are referred to our clinic for psoriasis will be seen uh, very quickly, often within two to four weeks. And so that's the best approach because dermatologists are specialists of the skin and uh, we have extensive training in all conditions, but especially immune-mediated inflammatory diseases like psoriasis. Uh, clinics like ours, we actually specialize in it, and so we are happy to see patients fast. And, and, and what about treatments? What does that look like? Are we talking creams, or is it an oral medication? You know what? We have uh, all types of treatments, and I always say now is the best time to be a patient with psoriasis and a physician who treats psoriasis because there's no reason why anybody should have psoriasis on their skin. We have topical therapies, which includes creams, gels, ointments, lotions, and potions, as I say. We also have uh, oral treatments. So we have tablets available, and there's also injections available. And so any of these treatments, depending on the severity of psoriasis, would be appropriate for a patient. But we should be clearing patients. Patients should not have any psoriasis. I want to bring it back to the genetics, uh, doctor, if we can. We got a text from Roger who asks, is it a hereditary condition? So I, I, I guess uh, further to Roger's question, if my 
father or mother has psoriasis, can I expect that coming down the line for sure, or is it just a chance? There's a chance. It's not for sure, but definitely there's a chance. And, and they have identified several genes that are involved in psoriasis. It's not as simple as we think it is, but there's definitely several genes identified. And then it, it depends on, you know, whether both parents have it or just one parent has it. It's not guaranteed the child will get it, but there is a chance that the child will get it. Absolutely. Very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time on this Tuesday morning. Hey, thank you again for having me. That's Dr. Vamal Prajapati, Skin Health and Wellness Center and DermFi. All right. It is a big win for hackers and Tesla owners. You may soon be able to unlock your vehicle's full potential for free. If you're willing to bend the rules a bit, that is. Uh, let's get to it with the gadget guy, Mike Yanni, also focusing on screen time for teens. You've got us all wrapped up. So much to cover, Mike. Good morning to you. Hey, good morning. Now, this is a Tesla hack. People who like Teslas, they like them a lot. Uh, but we've heard about the extra bells and whistles that you normally have to pay for. Uh, you can really get around that? Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, a bit of background, if you if you don't own a Tesla or don't know somebody who owns one, here's how it works. You buy your vehicle and there are some upgrades that are there. They're built into the vehicle, but you actually have to pay for. So like rear heated seats, physically it's there, but you have to pay a fee and then the company will upload software over the air and actually enable it. So, of course, you know, it adds up. You know, it, some people have estimated it's another $20,000 to unlock all the bells and whistles. So this is why it's such a big deal for hackers uh, that you can open this all up. But this is the real victory here because it's not a software hack. What they're doing is they found a way to electrically glitch into the infotainment system. So this is a physical hack. So that means Tesla can't fix it. There's been cat and mouse, Andy, for a while now where hackers will hack a Tesla and then Tesla will send out a software patch to fix it so that, you know, that free upgrade is no longer free. Uh, so they're saying this is a permanent hack. Tesla can't go back in and fix it. So really interesting how this cat and mouse game has evolved. But one thing I, I'm kind of curious about, Andy, and I don't know if you thought about this before, but the fact that this kind of opens up the whole idea of the bigger question about vehicles are sophisticated now. Mm -hmm. How much longer until a vehicle gets hacked to harm its owner or somebody gets locked out with ransomware of their vehicle so they can't drive it? It's kind of crazy where things are going. Well, it's a double-edged sword. Like you say, Tesla can't do anything about it because it's a physical hack. But you would maybe like the automakers to do something about it if it could be used for nefarious purposes. So it's a very slippery slope. And I guess as we increase the number of electric vehicles on the road in different brands and different models, uh, the conundrum is only going to continue. Oh, for sure. And there is a huge underground of hacking vehicles right now, whether it's Tesla or other electric vehicles. Um, it's, you know what, it, you can fall down the rabbit hole for sure online. Wow, absolutely. Hey, let's uh, switch gears and talk about screen time when it comes to our children. And I think sometimes we think it's only in our houses, Mike, so only in our houses, uh, right. you know, our neighbors or whatever. Uh, but this is not just a, a, you know, our houses, our streets, our cities, our country, but this is a worldwide issue in, in China of all uh, countries is going to tackle this. Tell us about this. Yeah, I know. And I don't know about you, but as I get older, I see the impact of the use of smartphones on the kids, you know, yeah. some of it good, some of it bad. And I think a lot of parents would agree that we should be limiting how much time we spend. But how do you do it? But get a look at this. Like China's looking at legislation now, limiting time spent on smartphones for you. So this, this is how it breaks down, Andy. 16 to 18 year olds, two hours a day. Wow. Two hours a day, that's it. So that includes anything you're doing on your phone. Eight to 16 year olds would get one hour, eight and under, 
40 minutes that some of that, you know, I mean, that's, it's pretty harsh. Two hours is not a lot of time. You know, you just go on TikTok yeah. and there's two hours gone just like that. But I think the bigger question here, Andy, is how do you enforce this? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I mean, I know that in the past, and we'll be giving out your full info as far as where people can find out more about what you do, Mike, you, you've reviewed some of these, you know, different apps that you can get to limit screen time for kids. But eventually, do they work? Or as a parent, you just get sick of them complaining that they don't have enough screen time and you turn the app off? They work to a point because you have to remember – Kids are smart. Yeah. It does not take them long to figure out a way to circumvent them and trick you, thinking that they're, you know, they're they're locked out at a certain period of time. And they've already found a way. They're two steps ahead of you. So you think that you've controlled them, but they've already, you know, bypassed those locks. But that's what they're saying. In China, they're saying that it's going to be up to the smartphone manufacturers to build in software in their operating systems uh, to try and limit how much time the kids have on it. I don't, I don't know if it's going to work. On paper, I think it works. In the real world, I'm not convinced you can do this. Well, still, any help we can get as parents would be fantastic. Now, uh, when it's the iPads, the, the phones, maybe the TVs, computers, Electronic waste, we use so much of them. Electronic waste is real, Mike. Uh, but now you're going to tell us the story of one company that claims their circuit board will actually dissolve in water? Yeah, this is this is pretty crazy. I mean, we know electronic waste. It's a, it's a problem. It's building up the landfills. And even when we recycle them, and I use air quotes when I say <laughs> recycle, they typically quite often get sent overseas and certain parts are removed and then the rest ends up in a dump over there. But this could be the game changer. This German company announcing that its circuit boards will dissolve in hot water in six minutes. So, I mean, obviously, though, there's there's still the circuits. There's still parts on the board that won't dissolve. But that actual green board itself will disappear, which I think is a pretty huge step. Um, but it might make you think twice about having that hot cup of tea or coffee next to your laptop, hey? Can you imagine? So but this is when you've looked inside electronics. This is that green. It almost feels like a piece of plastic where the, uh, you know, the guts of the, uh, the unit, you know, some of the circuitry is on top of that. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, there's still metal traces. There are still other circuits that are built with other materials. Those obviously will not dissolve. But the piece that holds it all together, uh, which as far as as far as I know right now, there's no way to recycle that actual part. Yeah. So it's a pretty huge step. Incredible. Thanks so much, Mike. A, a busy one for us. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. That is Mike Yanni. We call him the Gadget Guy. You can find out more about what he does online at Gadget Guy Mike. Or on YouTube, you can find his channel by searching Gadget Guy Mike Yanni.